Father God, thank you for today. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Um, Father, thank you that um, even when it stings, even when it's hard to hear, it is so good for us to hear it. So Father, I pray that uh, you would wash us with this truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our next topic, or Paul's next topic as he approaches uh, the end of 1 Timothy is uh, relationships within the church. And this whole last section is is directed at Timothy and his relationships within the church, but I think it uh, is very applicable to church relationships in general. So in all of chapter 5 and the first couple verses of chapter 6, he's going to talk about the relationship Timothy should have with men and women in the church, older and younger. He's going to talk about the relationship the church should have with widows in the church and also with elders in the church. And then after that, the last part of 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 21, Paul's kind of goes stream of consciousness on us, and, and he does this a lot. He, he meanders quite frequently. Uh, and so he's going to kind of go stream of consciousness, and he's going to return to the topic of false teachers uh, a little bit, and he's going to talk about wealth, uh, both the uh, being eager for wealth and how wealthy people should use their money. Uh, and, and then he's going to give a series of sort of unconnected commands uh, to Timothy as he, as he closes it out. It's kind of like, you know, when I'm talking, so, oh, one more thing. You know, I'm, I always have one more thing, and, and I, t- I think Paul was a little bit that way too. So beginning in chapter 5, the first two verses, oh, it's already up there. Thank you, Julie. Um, it's already up there, so I'll just read 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So uh, the, these are, as I said, directed at Timothy, but how and, and how he should treat older and younger men and women. But I believe that these are principles that are good for all of us, that are good uh, for the church in general. Uh, the family of God. And he begins by saying, do not be harsh with an older man. And I think that would apply for an older woman as well. The Greek word there actually means to attack um, someone, but here used figuratively to verbally attack. Do not verbally attack an older man. Even if he needs correction, do it gently. Um, When I was reading this, I remembered a time years ago, and I need to be careful that I don't identify anyone, but I was having dinner with a family, and the family loved to play cards after dinner, and and the grandpa of the family was a fabulous card player in his day. But he was no longer a fabulous, and he couldn't remember rules, and he couldn't remember, you know, used to be he knew where cards were, he knew, and he was having trouble. And it was a sad thing to see, but the way the family reacted to it was even sadder. You know, it was like, Grandpa, no, you don't, can't play that. That's not what we do now. No, we do this. I mean, they were being really harsh with him. And I'm like, you know, dudes, don't you think if he could do it right, he would? And it was very instructive to me because this was in the years before my father had Alzheimer's. It was, it was very instructive to me how to deal with someone who no longer can do what they used to be able to do. And I'm telling you right now, it happens fast. I'm out throwing the football with my son. It's like, whose arm is that that can only throw the thing 10 yards? That is not me that just... It happens really fast. And so deal with older people gently, uh, and cr- even if they need correction. And then he turns a- and talks about younger men and women. And I love where he says to treat uh, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Timothy was likely single, and this would be a very important instruction for him. Um, I used to uh, help lead FCA with a young man who at the time was a, a single college guy, and he was really cute, and he was really, and I was married, but I'm just telling you, he was really cute, and he was really charming, but he didn't know it, 
And he found out quickly, he said to me, you know, girls take things wrong. I'll give them a hug, and they think like we're dating or something. And so he took this verse to heart. He absolutely took it to heart. And I heard him once speak to teenagers, and at the time he was engaged. And he said, I decided that I wouldn't do anything with a girl that I wouldn't do with my sister. Would I hug my sister? Yeah. But would I give her some sort of long, no. Would I kiss her? No, I wouldn't kiss her. And, And he actually lived by that. His first kiss with his wife was at the altar. Now, that may sound pretty severe, but I love that he took the application of this verse seriously and how different would relationships within the church, particularly the ones that happen in this room on a Wednesday night, be if kids took seriously that sort of application of this verse. Just a thought. And this is the wrong crowd, except for maybe Lindsay, to be talking about this with anyway. Uh, And then he turns and he begins to talk about widows uh, and who is really a widow. And care for widows would have been especially important in the church for several reasons. First of all, not only did men, women generally outlive men, which is true today too, but once their husbands were dead, they had no legitimate means of supporting themselves. They couldn't go out and find a job. There was no life insurance. So they had no legitimate means of supporting themselves when their husbands died. And the other factor is that oftentimes when people became believers, their families disowned them, especially if they were Jewish. And so you would find yourself uh, separated from your family uh, in this position. And then even more importantly, and I had you read some of these verses, is all over scripture there's, there's a plethora of verses where God's care for the widow and how we care for widows is made, and orphans and the alien, made absolutely obvious. And so this is a topic that is close and dear to the heart of God. And we know it was a major factor within the church because of uh, Acts 6 where the Greek widows, the non-Jewish widows, weren't getting, were getting the short shrift on the food distribution as opposed to the Jewish widows. And so seven men were chosen to make sure that that was all handled equitably. So this taking care of widows was very important, and he's going to first talk about who is really a widow. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Now, that could also be translated, give proper recognition to those widows who are really widows, who are really, truly widowed. And we'll talk about what that means. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need, who is really a widow and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So those who were really widows were left all alone, or more literally, it says entirely alone. There's no one else to help them, no family available or willing um, to help them. They are really widows. And then also a widow who is really a widow, she must be a believer who is trusting in God. And he pictures that as she's praying day and night to God for help. She is putting all her faith and trust in God. And he says these widows who are really widows should be given proper recognition. What does that mean? When, what does that word recognition mean? Well, it, the word is tomeo, and it means to honor or to revere. But it also carries with it another meaning, and that is one of financial support. 
That's where we get our word an honorarium. So you were part of honoring them is to care for their physical needs. So I think what Paul is saying here is that it is the church's duty, it is the family's duty first, but then the church's duty to, to give proper physical, spiritual, and emotional care to widows. Um, but that is not true if the widow is living for pleasure. If the widow is either a non-believer or if the widow is a believer who is living for pleasure, and, and these, this may mean um, that she had turned to illegitimate means to support herself. So y'all can probably figure out what that means. Um, and if she had done that, then she is not one um, that should be supported. Either way, the word picture here of, of this, this woman, this widow living for pleasure being uh, dead, even though she lives, is, is both very vivid and ironic. Uh, it's ironic because she's in this state of widowhood because her husband died. And she's the one who lives. And yet, even though she is physically alive, she is spiritually dead. Um, And I think that's Paul's point there. So the responsibility lies for caring for these widows lies, first of all, with family members. That's part of what it means to honor one's father and mother. Uh, And it is pleasing to God, as Paul has said here. And this was a value that was woven into the fabric of society uh, at this time. Uh, whether believing society or pagan society. So for a believer to refuse to do what a pagan would do is to make them worse than an unbeliever uh, because they aren't even doing what the pagans will do. Um, There are two recurring themes in here that I want to point out to you because these are themes we've seen before. First is the connection between faith and behavior or doctrine and, and practice. Um, that, that what we believe affects how we live. And, and Paul puts it right here. Uh, if, a woman, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice, to live what they say they believe and take care of mom or grandma. Um, and then the second thing we've seen over and over again uh, is the, the, idea of, of the idea of the unbelieving world is watching. So be careful how you live. Because the unbelieving world is watching. Oh, I didn't get to seven. I'm really sorry about that. I forgot about this part. Uh, Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. So nobody can point a finger and say, see, I told you Jesus isn't true. I told you he doesn't make a difference. Look how that person is living. So this idea that it's important how we live because people are watching and Paul is concerned with the gospel of Christ, the reputation of Christ and the gospel. Um, So don't be open to blame and thus malign the name and cause of Christ. And then he turns, he's still talking about widows, but he he talks about a list. And and what is this list? Well, in verses 9 and 10, it says, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. That's part of why I wrote about it in the um, lesson this week. So if you didn't get a chance to see that, you can go back and look at it. But, but here's what I think. Because there, there's, I read three different commentaries with three different opinions on this. 
So I hesitantly, with all my degrees, my BA in Social Studies Education and Physical Education, are going to tell you what I think, because I'm arrogant. But anyway, uh, for what it's worth, I think that there was some sort of semi-formal group of widows who made a commitment to minister within the church rather than remarry. So they said, look, I, I, in, in lieu of remarrying, I will commit myself to this ministry, uh, to widows um, and, and to the church. Uh, and, uh, so, um, and, and probably included visitation because it talks later about the younger widows going out visiting and ending up and saying things they shouldn't say. So it probably included that. I don't think there, later on there was an official order of widows, like widow nuns kind of thing. I don't think it was that official that there was an order of widows, but I do think that, that it was some sort of commitment. Um, semi-formal commitment. And here's why I think so. First of all, he says they can't be put on the list unless they're over 60. Well, if the list just means who's really a widow in need, if she's 59 and she has no family, are you really going to say, sorry, we can't help you? Does that sound like Paul? That doesn't sound like Paul to me, that he'd say, I'm sorry, you're not 60 until February. We can't help you out. Um, so uh, I, I think that that is a really old age to say we're not going to help any widows under 60, no matter how needy they would be. Um, and then there also appears to me to be a higher standard. It, the standard for a widow who was really in need was that she needed to be a believer who trusted God. The standard for the list is well known for her good deeds, and then it lists them because she's going to be ministering. So she needs to be known as one who has already been ministering in her marriage uh, while she was married. So it seems a higher standard, which would make sense. If you're going to have someone make a commitment to ministry, you want to make sure they're a good fit for that ministry. So that would make sense to me. I think it also explains what he's about to say about a pledge, about a younger widow denying her former pledge. And so let's read what he says about that. He says, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not do. Really? Women do that? So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So what is this pledge? I don't think it means uh, her marital vow, that if she remarries after she's widowed, that she's broken her marital vow, because a widow is free to remarry. We marry until death. And so that would not be breaking that pledge. Um, I also, uh, and, and in fact, Paul counsels them to remarry. Paul says, you know what? You know what they should do? They really need to get married again instead of just wasting uh, time and, and being idle. Uh, so I believe that, that it is a, a vow is maybe too strong of a word, but the pledge is a commitment to say, look, I'm going to minister within the church uh, in these specific areas rather than I'm going to make my commitment, my life's commitment be to that ministry rather than uh, to remarry. Now, the younger widows were more likely to want to remarry. And so Paul says, by all words, by all means, do remarry. And then he says to manage their homes. That's a really strong word, that word manage their homes. It's this Greek word, oikodespoteo. I see the word despot in there, and I'm a little concerned about that, but I have no idea if it means anything because I don't actually speak Greek. 
but it is, it is a word that was used uh, of a ruling star in a constellation. And so Paul believed that women should take a very firm management position, uh, so to speak, within a home, that a woman should manage her home in a very strong way. And he advocated for that. Again, in these verses, we see Paul's concern that the gospel not be maligned, to give the enemy no opportunity for slander, uh, that, the, that, that the cause of Christ not be hurt by the behavior of these younger widows. Um, in this case, it would have been gossiping women. And then verse 16 uh, is kind of a summary of all this. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need, who are really widows. Now, why is it just women here? Well, there's what's called a textual variant here. I don't want to get in too detailed, but what that means is that there's some um, debate over whether that should be just women or if it should be women and men. And I think that makes more sense, that Paul isn't just saying, look, let let the women take care of the widows. Let the church take care of the widows. Both the women and the men uh, take care of the widows. But I'd like to go back for a minute um, to this this thing about, you thought I was just going to pass right by gossiping, didn't you? Yeah, you know me better than that. Paul may seem to be unfair here and to be sexist about the women um, gossiping, but can we talk? We're all women here. And um, uh, I, I believe that it's, let's just be honest, that women generally have more words. I know I have more words than my husband. And those of you who know my husband are like, well, anybody has more words than your husband. And that's really true. Uh, but we generally have more words to say than our husbands, and sometimes those words just get us into trouble. You should be in the room when I'm with my three sisters and me, and we're all four verbal processors. So it takes like 24 hours just to get through who gets which ring, you know, of my mother's, because we're all verbal processors, and our words can get us into trouble. And I believe it's just true, ladies. We are more prone to gossip than men are. Call me a sexist if you want. It wouldn't be the first time I've been called one. I believe it's true. And so just as younger widows, as they visited from house to house, would be tempted to gossip, I believe that we can fall under the same temptation. I want to give you my working definition. This is not mine, but I have no idea where I got it of gossip. If the person to whom you are talking is not part of the solution or part of the problem, it's gossip. So I give that to you. Uh, for your, oh, and also don't, don't couch it in the terms of prayer request. I love this one. I just got to tell you, could you please pray for me? She just having so much trouble. That little one of hers is, yeah. So I I really want to tell you that Mamie's life is really in trouble, but let's just couch it in terms of a, of a prayer request. It's still gossip if the person isn't part of the solution or part of the problem. So Paul tells us that the responsibility to care for widows is first with the family and then with a church. Um, And I can't spend much time on this. I will say that there are a whole lot of things I teach about that I'm not particularly qualified to teach about. This is one that I think I'm qualified to teach about. I helped care for my father as he went through Alzheimer's, and my mother as she suffered from macular degeneration and then cancer. And I don't have time to say everything I'd like to say about this. It'd probably be a whole lesson if I did, but let me just sum sum it up. Part of honoring our mothers and fathers, as they age, is to care for them as best we can. It will look different in each case. 
In my case, it meant moving a few houses away from my parents so that we could keep my father home through his Alzheimer's, and we did. And so we could keep my mother home through her cancer, and we did. Um, it will look different in other situations, but we are responsible as believers to care for our parents. And when family cannot or will not do that, the church is responsible to care for members of the church as they age, to care for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. Um, I don't want to politicize this, but I do believe that the church has abdicated a position that it held for nearly 2,000 years uh, in caring for those in need. Uh, and we have allowed the government to do what the church is supposed to do. And it is my, uh, my firm conviction that no committed believer who is part of a local body should ever have to look outside that body uh, for their material needs, that the church ought to be caring for those people. It might be pro provocative, but I believe it's a thoroughly biblical position. So now he turns from elders and he uh, is going to, or turns from, excuse me, widows and is going to talk about the elders of the church in verses 17 through 20. The elders who direct the affairs of the church uh, well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out grain and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be pu rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I think that's it. Yeah, okay. Um, so the elders that do their work well are deserving of double honor. That word again is tomeo. They're worthy of double honor. Now, that clearly means at least payment. We get that from the next verses because the whole ox thing, do not muzzle the ox, that's from the Old Testament. If, if an ox is going to work, okay, if you're going to hook him up to the whole big meal thing, let the boy eat. You know, he's working, so if there's some grain falling on the ground, let him pick it up. Don't put a muzzle on him so he can't eat. If he's going to work, let him eat. And then Jesus said, give the worker his wages. So clearly, tomeo here means wages. But what does double tomeo mean? Well, it means uh, either they deserve double payment for that, or it means they deserve respect and honor and payment. I think the second choice is more likely. Um, I don't know why. I just do. It makes sense to me that he would say they deserve both respect, both honor, and payment um, for their work. Uh, and then, it, then he deals with what do we do when an elder gets himself in trouble? What do we do when we have a charge to bring against an elder? Well, first he upholds the Jewish law, which says you have to have at least two witnesses. And they need to agree, which is one of the reasons why Jesus' trial was illegal, because none of the witnesses agreed. So you have to have two witnesses, at least, that say the same thing, um, preferably three. And be careful before you bring an accusation against a church leader. Don't do it lightly. But if they are caught in sin, then they need to be disciplined. And particularly if the sin is public, then the discipline needs to be made public as well. Boy, that's an ethic that we rarely see in churches today. 
And then he goes on, and, and he's still talking about elders here at the beginning. He says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So what he's saying is, look, if you've got an elder that's in trouble, if you've got an elder that has sinned, don't do the good old boy thing. That's kind of loose translation of the Greek, okay? You need to not show favoritism. I know this guy's your buddy. I know this is a man that you've, you know, that you've respected. But if he sinned, he needs to be disciplined for that. Don't show favoritism. So he's still talking about elders there. And then he goes on and he says this, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So what does that mean? Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Well, um, first of all, there, there are two choices here. He could mean, do not be hasty to restore an elder who has been caught in sin. Or he could mean, do not be hasty to make someone an elder in the first place. Um, And it's hard to choose, but I think it's more likely the second one. Do not be hasty to make a person an elder in the first place. Be careful in doing that. Uh, And and the reason is that if an elder is fully vetted, to use a modern political term, um, then the church is less likely to have issues of sin concerning those elders. Or put more eloquently by Donald Guthrie, he says, undue haste in Christian appointments has not infrequently led to unworthy men bringing havoc to the cause of Christ. So do not be hasty to uh, choose elders. And then verse 23 says, stop drinking only water. I told you it was stream of consciousness. And use a little wine because your stomach, because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Okay, so Timothy apparently had some plumbing problems that may be a little bit of TMI from Paul for us, but uh, he, he's going to come back. This is very Paul. He, he, gets, he meanders off and he comes back. He comes back to the idea of sinning. He says, what, what caused him to do that? I don't know. You can read, I mean... The theologians will tell you, I think, he, I, that, I think he just thought of it and wrote it down. I don't think there's any connection. But then he comes back to sins. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Here's in one sentence what he's saying. Your sin will find you out, one way or the other. It will either be made obvious while you live or when you appear before Christ One way or another, your sins will find you out, and so will your good deeds. Um, If you do good, people will know. And even if people don't know, God does. And then he ends his talking about um, relationships with slaves and masters. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Do you see it there again? Concern for the cause of Christ that uh, the outside world is looking Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and to urge on them. So slaves and masters, I don't want to get into the whole slavery thing. That's kind of why I wrote about it in the the lesson because we don't have time for that. If you have questions about it, though, I don't want to trivialize it. If you have questions, please, please ask me. Um, but basically, Paul, what Paul is saying is, slaves, respect your masters. If they're unbelieving, respect them. If they're believing, respect them. You are to uh, have respect for them, no matter what they believe. But particularly if they're believers, don't presume upon that relationship. 
don't think you can get away with stuff because you happen to love this person and they love you and you're both believers. Truly, honestly, this reminds me of my mother and her cleaning ladies. She had the worst time finding someone who would clean her house without becoming her best friend because my mom was absolutely adorable in every single way and everybody who met her loved her, even the people who came and cleaned her home. So I'd walk into her house, no lie, week after week when this one particular lady was cleaning for her and I would find them at the kitchen table chatting and having coffee. And I'm like, aren't you supposed to have a vacuum? She's paying you to sit and drink coffee with her. And this is years and years ago. There's another one that I showed up for Christmas, and the cleaning lady and her whole family were there. <laughs> and the little kids running around the house, I'm like, we got 13 grandkids. Don't we have enough? Do we have to have more? Uh, and she had the heart. It took years before she found Steffi and Pam, who were a mother-daughter team who adored my mother, so much so that they said, I want to work even harder for you because I love you. I don't know what Pam and Steffi to this day, I don't know what Pam and Steffi believe about Jesus, but I do know that they exemplified this verse. And is it applicable then to employer-employee relationships? I think so, because slavery was very different in the ancient world than it is now. Uh, and I discussed that in the, uh, in the lesson this week. So now Paul, as I said, goes stream of consciousness, and he begins talking about a bunch of different things. But I want to I point out this. These are things you are to teach and to urge on them. Does that mean what he's just said, or does it mean what he's about to say? I think it means what he's about to say. So I repeated it on this slide. These are things you are to teach and to urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound te- instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. I think what Paul is doing here is making a contrast. He's saying, look, these are things that you need to teach. You need to be teaching the truth as opposed to false doctrine. Um, as these people teach. And it's probably better, um, I know it says, uh, if anyone teaches false doctrines, but we know from early in 1 Timothy that in fact people were teaching false doctrine. So I think it's better translated to say whoever teaches false doctrine. Those guys we've been talking about, they're teaching false doctrine and they are, he gives characteristics of them, they are conceited and they understand nothing. I love one translation, the something, the R-E-B, I think. He (laughs) says, they're, they're pompous ignoramuses. <laughs> That's a good, good word for them. They're argumentative, uh, leading to all sorts of problems within the church. They have an unhealthy interest in quarrels. quarrels. That word unhealthy is nauseo. Nauseo. They have a sick interest, in a diseased interest in, uh, in quarrels. Um, and they are greedy. They are looking to make a buck. They see this ministry as a way to cha-ching, to make money. And the greed of these false teachers leads Paul to talk about greed in general. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So contentment is the opposite of greed. Because when we are content with what we have, we will not covet what someone else has, and we will not grasp for more. When true godliness combines with true contentment, then we have true gain. Donald Guthrie again says, contentment does not come from owning whatever we want, for there is no end to what we want. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's an Awana verse. Learned that one from Awana. Philippians 4.11-13, Paul basically says, Look, I know what it means to be poor. I know what it means to be rich. I know what it means to have plenty. I know what it means to be in want. But I have learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are to be content. Here's what I believe Paul is telling us about wealth. Wealth itself is not wrong. However, to be eager for it, the desire for it is. And this consumption to have more is found both in the wealthy and in the poor. Uh, It's the same drive that causes people to buy lottery tickets when they can ill afford to spend the money on lottery tickets. And it's the same drive that caused John D. Rockefeller, the Bill Gates of his day, to say, do you, do you want to know the only thing that brings me pleasure? It's to see my dividends coming in. He was once asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. It is part of our sin nature. And those attitudes are the kinds of things that only bring Grief and heartache, no matter how many cars, houses, or shares of Berkshire Hathaway stock you own. That desire, that eagerness for money. And then Paul turns and he says, but you. And this is a strong adversative. This shouldn't be true of you, but you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of witnesses. Am I supposed to read this whole thing? Yeah, I am. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, No, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back. So he says, but you, this shouldn't be true of you. You are to flee from these things. He calls a man of God. That's important because that was the the, the term that was used for the prophets in the Old Testament and for King David and and some other kings. But you, O man of God, he is building Timothy up. He's saying, you can do this. You can persevere. You are, O man of God. You are to live differently. Uh, And he's, he's encouraging him and telling him, you can do what I'm telling you to do. Well, what is he to do? First of all, he is to flee. He is to flee all this, all the things that Paul has just discussed. He is to flee from false doctrine. He is to flee from conceit and quarrels. And he is to flee from greed and the pursuit of wealth. Instead of pursuing that, he's to pursue righteousness. He's to pursue a life of integrity. He is to pursue godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. What a vivid picture 
of a person escaping the snare of evil desires and running after what is good. Because, ladies, we cannot simultaneously run away from and toward God. It's impossible. We will run after one or the other. Years ago, uh, when I left, led FCA, one of the people that's had the biggest impact on my life is a man named Stan Parker. Some of you know him. And uh, he used to love to ask high schoolers this question. So how are you doing in your faith? You feel like, you feel like you're moving ahead or do you feel like you're coasting? See, because a kid would never admit to going backward in his faith, but coasting. This was a good option. Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm coasting. Yeah, see, it wasn't a bad thing. I kind of feel like I'm coasting. And then Stan would say, really, okay, can you coast uphill? Because, see, there's really only two ways we can go in our faith. We're either moving forward or moving backward. Uh, And if we're coasting, that's really going backwards, uh, moving away from God. We are to be pursuing the things of God, running hard after the things of God. So he tells them what to flee, and he tells them what to pursue, and then he tells them to fight. Now, this isn't a military term, actually, it's a, because he just told them to be gentle. But it's, it's actually a, a, an athletic term. It means to contend for a prize. He says, fight the good fight of faith, which means the inner struggle of faith that we deal with every day, that we battle our sin nature every day, because there is a prize awaiting us, which he'll tell us, toward the end of 2 Timothy, a crown that awaits. And then he says, take hold, take hold of eternal life. Now, obviously, this isn't something that is earned. It's something we already have. He says it's what you've been called to. We already have it. We only need to appropriate what God has already given us. That's similar to Paul's teaching elsewhere, where he will tell us who we already are in Christ. He'll give us all these things that we already are in Christ, and then basically he'll say, Become who you are. Well, in this case, he's saying, take hold of what you already have. Take hold of the eternal life that you have been given. Um, And then he says, in the sight of of God who gives life to everything, and in Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is alone immortal and immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. So he says, I give you this charge, keep this command. Uh, when, when he says this command, I think what he's saying is, persevere in your life of ministry. Persevere in all that I have taught you. As the song says, until he returns or calls you home, stand in this truth. What is the confession that Timothy confessed? It's likely his initial profession of faith, his baptismal profession, if you will, to remember that uh, and to take hold of it. And then, as he has done before in 1 Timothy Paul just can't help but break forth in praise to God. It is all so amazing to him that he, again, uh, has a doxology uh, that he breaks out into. You know, ladies, if you take nothing else away from 1 Timothy, this is a good word for you and for me. When it's time to praise God, I don't care where you are. (laughs) I don't care what we're doing. Praise him. Praise him for what you've seen. My mom would do that. I know I talk about my mom a lot. If you knew her, you'd know why. 
I mean, we just, we just be, and she, she's a beautiful singer. So she just, you know, starts singing how great thou art for absolutely no reason that I could see. But she was ready to praise God. And then he returns to this wealth thing. Command those who are rich in this present world to not, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Ladies, this is all of us. Um, political again, but you know, I am the 99 that's bagging on the 1% wealthy, the the Wall Street protesters. Compared to the rest of the world, we're all the 1%. I don't care who you are, you don't think you're wealthy, trust me, I am the 1% compared to the people living in Serenje, Zambia. Uh, And so we need to take heed on these words and remember that wealth is temporary. Command those who are rich in this world. It is temporary. It is not eternal. Do not be arrogant. By God's grace, I was born in the United States of America and not in Uganda. How can I be arrogant about that? There is nothing to be arrogant about. Do not put your hope in your wealth. When I begin to stew about finances or the stock market, I'm beginning to place my hope in something other than the God who so richly provides for me. Be generous in sharing what you have. You know, there's a song I really, truly hate. I know I've never said that before. I tell you the ones I love. It's a song, Imagine, by John Lennon. But just imagine what would happen if the believing church took hold in the West, took hold of these words, and said, you know what? It's not mine. Give it away. What would happen to the church worldwide. And what better thing could I possibly do with my money than to share it with those who are in need in Jesus' name? Well, let's end because we're, we're about done. He, there are two more verses. Yeah, so those are they and they're good. You can read them later. Let's talk about this idea of pursuing the things of God. I took a little liberty with Paul. I hope I don't... Uh, yeah, there's a woman up there. So, you know, sue me. Uh, <laughs> For our purposes. You know, the story of the Bible, um, the, the whole story of the Bible is actually about God's pursuit of us. How God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves. Kind of like when my kids were two and they said, Mommy, you tie my shoe. I didn't say, Do it yourself, dude. No, I bent down and I did it for, for my children what they could not do for themselves. That's the whole story of the Bible. All other religions say, You do this to reach God, you do this to reach God, you do this to reach God. Only Christianity says, only the Bible says, you can't do it. And so this is how I have done it for you. Having said that, I believe we must take seriously Paul's call to action to Timothy. And I love the vivid picture that Paul paints with really strong verbs. Flee from all this. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He says, flee evil. Don't just walk away. Run. Get out of there. Flee. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Don't just casually check it out. Pursue it. Run after it. Work hard at it. Have you ever been pursued by a guy? 
that just wouldn't give up? I was one time, Reno. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Would not, I did not want to date Reno, but Reno wanted to date me. And I just had to finally, you know, just say, hey, that's enough. Okay, I'm in Colorado now. I moved away from you. <laughs> uh, that's what he's saying. Pursue it. Don't give up. Persevere in it. We are to pursue godliness. Fight the good fight. Don't give up. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of that which is already yours in Christ. My prayer for all of us is that this picture of an active, living faith uh, would so resonate with us that it would cause us to want to flee and pursue and fight and take hold. And in doing so, that we, we would bring glory to God who is alone deserving of our praise. Let's pray. Father God, you alone are worthy. You alone are God. Father, I pray that you would build in us these truths, that we might flee evil and pursue righteousness and fight the good fight and take hold of our eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. We made it through. Thanks, ladies.